So we are, we've come to a, the end of our series on David, or this is the, the final uh, session that we're, we're going to spend some time, for now anyway, looking at David. I wonder how you found the series so far. I wonder whether it's been good. I wonder whether it's been challenging. Certainly we've had some pretty good uh, discussions in our Connect group about David and a lot about the different cultural contexts and you know, we've, there's a lot of blood and guts, isn't there, in the Old Testament and uh, how we relate to that and how we tease out some of the themes that God is saying to us. But certainly it's been very interesting. However, I do wonder uh, whether we've done David a little bit of a disservice because we've chosen to look at him <clears throat> through the prism or the magnifying glass of his relationships with other people in his life. So if we look at this slide, we can see that David was noble, but he was also a bit of a schemer. We've seen that he can be very considered and calm, but also hot-headed. We've seen that he can be humble, but he also was proud. We've seen that he's faithful, but was also caught in adultery. He was grateful, and yet at times he was greedy. And he was gentle, and yet he was also complicit in murder. Now, I don't know about you, but on your CV down the right-hand side. You'd want all of the left-hand side, but you'd want none of the right-hand side. We haven't looked at David as the poet and the psalmist. We haven't looked at David as the, theolo the theologian or the worshipper or the intercessor, prayer, man of prayer, the musician, a courageous man of faith. We haven't taken that theme, have we, those themes, but he was all of those things as well. And I think it just goes to show that possibly of nearly all of the characters we've got in the Old Testament, David's life is laid bare before us, warts and all, both the highs, the lows, the triumphs, the disasters, the saintly behavior and the sinful behavior as well. And you know that David is mentioned more than 1,100 times in the Bible. I haven't personally counted them. Someone else did. Uh, and he's one of the most influential figures there is in both the Old and, as we'll see today, in the New Testament as well. So why was it that he was so influential? Why is it that it's David that keeps getting mentioned? He was only, as we've heard, Israel's second king. And yet during his reign, he defeats Israel's enemies, unites the country. He brings the Ark of the Covenant, which was the physical representation of the presence of God in, in, amongst, the, amongst Israel. He brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And Israel was established and enjoyed rest and appeared from their enemies in a, a long period of, of prosperity. And actually, that was as good as it ever got for Israel. <laughs> Even though they had many, many kings after David, no king came anywhere near close to establishing the rule and reign of God in Israel, as, as we find with David. And we also know that, obviously, David was an ancestor of Jesus. Um, and 
And many other people were also ancestors of Jesus, but it is David who gets the mention far more than anybody else. And today's theme is David and Jesus. Well, that's quite different, isn't it? Because David didn't meet Jesus, whereas he met all of the other people that we've been, we've been talking about in the last few Sundays. Their lives were separate, their physical lives were separated by hundreds of years, and so there's a different emphasis. But, so it led me to think, how do we learn about people in the past? Well, we learn through what others say about them. We learn through perhaps what they say about themselves, if that exists, and what they're remembered for. And it got me thinking about, next slide please, these epitaphs. So I thought, I'd see whether there were any amusing epitaphs that you can find on gravestones. And actually, I thought it would be quite a rich, there'd be loads to choose from, but they weren't huge. I mean, some of them were just ridiculous. So I have the next slide, please, Travis. So here's two or three, just by way of what people would like to be remembered for. And this is number one, oh no. That's all it says on this particular person, man or woman's gravestone. Next one. He loved bacon. So, is that what you'd like to be remembered for? I'm guessing that person probably wasn't Jewish. Just, just a hunch. Uh, oh, and the kids too, he said. The wife and the kids too underneath. Next one. This man lived. And then there wasn't a picture of this, but I found this. It says, here lies the father of 29. He would have had more, but he didn't have time. <laughs> important uh, things. I just want to consider two things this morning for us to, uh, to, to think about in relation to how David and Jesus were related. And the first one is this. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to David. And we first come across this in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So this is when, when we get through a lot of war a lot of arm wrestling, a lot of uh, victories and defeats and challenges and repentance, we get to a, a passage in 2 Samuel 7 where David and Israel, it says, are at rest. So much so that David has managed to build himself the most magnificent house made of cedar wood uh, and he is reflecting on all the goodness of God in his life and all the promises of God that have come to fruition. But something starts to bother him. And what starts to bother him is this. He said, I'm living in this magnificent Grand Designs house. And God's Ark of the Covenant, the place where God's presence dwells amongst us, is just in a tent. I would like to build a temple so that we can then bring God into the right place. My house shouldn't be better than where God is living, is essentially what he was thinking. And so, he was musing on this, and he was chatting, uh, presumably, about it in the court, and uh, uh, chatting to a friend of his called Nathan, who we've heard about. Nathan went on to challenge David, you remember, when we looked at David and Bathsheba, the incident between David and Bathsheba. And Nathan said, well, it sounds good to me, just, you know, do what you want to do. What, you know, what you've decided to do, you just get on and, uh, you know, get ahead. If you can find a builder, good luck. You're a better man than I am. Um, but go for it. But then during the night, God spoke to Nathan, and he went back to David and said, 
God says this, you're not to build my house. That will be your son who will do that, Solomon, because you've been a man of war, a man of bloodshed. Um, and, but he did go on to say this. He made this incredible promise to David, not just about bricks, mortar, as it were, wood, cloth, materials, gold, silver. It said, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Just stay on that, that last slide for a sec, Travis. And your throne will be established forever. So if we just pause there for a second, this is part of what uh, we call God's covenant with David, and we'll come on to that in a second. God makes inc an incredible promise to David here. He didn't say this to Saul. He didn't say this to anybody else, but he said it to David. And it was interesting, if you just look there, it says, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Now, that's, God is saying, before me, before God himself, your house will endure forever. Now, obviously, David is not going to live forever, is he? And God was revealing to David something about his sovereign plan of salvation. God allowed David to catch glimpses of what we can see in the Psalms. God the Father, Yahweh, was going to do something incredible, and this involved Israel, as expressed in David's reign. There was something about how God established David that would picture, would, would look ahead to the kingdom of God established through his son, the Messiah, Jesus. And we live now in the good of that promise. He's also telling David that there was something about his throne that will last forever. Now, the only person that can talk about forever is God himself. He's the only person. He's the only being that can authoritatively talk about forever because he created time himself. And what is fairly clear here is that when God talks to David about your kingdom, he's not just talking about the rule and reign of a particular person in a particular time in a particular country. He's talking about a completely different kingdom of people that will emerge as according, according to the promise of David. Now, David wouldn't have understood all of that. And we, we sit here this morning and we have much more wisdom. We have much more understanding. We have much more insight by miles than David ever did because we know that God was talking to David about Jesus. So what about this link between God's kingdom and his coming Messiah and David? Well, let's just have a look at a, a, few, a few more scriptures. There's a very famous uh, passage in Isaiah, which uh, we often, well, we, we don't often, we, every Christmas we read, but it's not just a Christmas passage. It's this. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's just glorious, isn't it? I mean, just, just think about the truth of that. And of the greatness of his government and of peace, there will be no end. He will reign on whose throne? On David's throne. And over his kingdom, 
establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. It wasn't about Saul's kingdom, it wasn't Solomon's kingdom, it wasn't Hezekiah's kingdom, it was David's kingdom. He will reign on David's throne, pointing to Jesus. And there are many other scriptures that we could pull out in the Old Testament. But as we're specifically looking about Jesus, let's go to the next slide. Guess what we find in verse 1 of chapter 1 of the New Testament? Matthew says this, A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, two things are important here. One is the reference both to David and Abraham, both covenant people in the Old Testament. And this is the new covenant. And Matthew doesn't say Jesus of Nazareth. He says Jesus Christ. And Christ is the word for Messiah. What David was promised by God a thousand or whatever, however many years it was before that. Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So, of the, of the New Testament, there's a reference to Jesus and David. And then there are lots of others as well. Where was Jesus born? He was born in Bethlehem, city of David, exactly. And lots of people who cried out to Jesus in his earthly ministry, particularly for healing, often said what? Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David. Where did they get that from? Other than deep in the hearts and minds of faithful Israelite people, Hebrew Jewish people, there's this covenant promise that is planted deep within their spirit to say, the past has been a bit of a wreck, but God has promised something. That's our history. All the way throughout the, the, the Old Testament. We look at this passage in Matthew 11. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the, the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. And the next slide, I think you're getting the message, aren't you? There's quite a strong link between David and Jesus. And this is the account in Matthew 12 of the healing of the person who was, who was possessed. And Jesus sorted this out with a word of faith. When others couldn't, and it says, all the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? And then finally, this with a beautiful almost symmetry is the fifth last verse in the New Testament. And it says this, I, Jesus, looking to John, who the whole revelation and the book of Revelation comes from a vision given, given to John. He said, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. Interesting. I am the root and offspring of David and the bright morning star. I am Jesus, son of David. It wasn't just that there were prophetic promises and insights and tantalizing visions at the time of David about the future Messiah. This, as I said, this prophetic tradition about the Messiah gripping on to the promises of God through the covenants in the Old Testament, that one day their Messiah would come and their Messiah would reign on David's throne. So we move from 
human promises about Jesus the Messiah to stories about day-to-day, David's day-to-day life to God's eternal plan of saving grace. I mean, the theme of grace, which we'll come on to in a sec through this, is just beautiful because we, we live, we sit now here in that prophetic stream of God speaking to Abraham through uh, Moses, through David, through the covenants in the Old Testament, and then Jesus comes. Jesus comes as the prophetic Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, that all of those promises we're looking towards. So what does this list tell us? I think it tells us two things. It tells us that God is sovereign and he keeps his promises. Amen? God is sovereign and he keeps his promises. Now, he might not keep his promises in the way that we would like him to keep them. And he doesn't always uh, answer our prayers and requests in the way that we want them to be answered and uh, and. But he keeps his promises. What are God's promises on your life this morning? What are God's promises that you've had in the past that perhaps have been buried and they've, they've been caked over with life's uh, experiences and perhaps disappointments and challenges? What's God, what are God's promises to King's Church here? What are God's promises to the church in Darlington? What are God's prophetic promises through the, the New Testament? That may take a while to come, but are we, are we owning them? Do we, do we hold them close to our hearts? Because we know that God is faithful and he keeps his promises. I felt God was just, you know, saying to me, nudging me this morning. Say, right, just say, come on, what, what is it? I'm just, just take a moment now to have a think about that. Stop listening to me and just, just say, God, I'm so grateful that you are faithful in my life. Just, I'm going to stop for a second. Just, just pray that. Just reach out to God now, where you are. So God is sovereign, and also God has a plan. He's not just sovereign and lives in ice, glorious, beautiful, blissful isolation, but he has a plan, and that plan included David, and that plan was fulfilled in Jesus, and that plan includes us as well. I think I've mentioned before the song by Paul Simon, Slip Sliding Away, um, you know, when it says, uh, God only knows, God has a plan, the information's unavailable to the mortal man. Well, that's not true. The information is available to the mortal man because the information is in Jesus. So God is sovereign and he has a plan. So, secondly, I just want to go back and touch on a covenant. Um, and we, we start in the same place, in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Unlike all previous covenants, they build on each other. And I think we, I mentioned before when I talked about David and Jonathan, 
There were covenants that took place between sort of men um, as a way of either sealing a friendship, sealing a treaty, sealing a military partnership. Uh, there were often um, about a more powerful person making a covenant with a, a less powerful person. Um, but also that was uh, taken over, as it were, by God because God made covenants with his people as well. Just the next slide, Travis. And there are a number of covenants in the Bible, but three I just want to mention here. One is Abraham because what we'll see is that each covenant builds and adds something to the previous one. So to Abraham, the covenant was in relation to making his name great and that he would have lots of descendants uh, in the face of pretty unpromising circumstances uh, as both him and his wife were very old and had no children up to that point. But God spoke to him and made a covenant with him. And when God makes a covenant with someone, what he says will happen. There's no question about it because it is all to do with God. It's the, the, the benefit of that covenant is all God giving something and not anybody doing anything to deserve it. Does that sound a bit like grace to you? Sounds a lot like grace to me. In Moses, the covenant was a, a bit more, it moved on because it was about um, the establishing of Israel as a nation through signs and wonders and coming through the, uh, the rescue from Egypt and through the Dead Sea. And it was about giving the law of God as to, right, I've God saying, I've chosen you as a people. This is now how I want you to live in faithfulness to me. And then we, we reach David. So we've had a great nation, nothing into something, something into a nation. And then actually this, the, the kingdom I will establish in this people, I've chosen Israel. For whatever reason God did that, we don't know. Is the, is the picture, the image of the kingdom that he wants forever, much beyond just Israel as a nation, to the ends of the earth. And that includes us here today. This covenant rests completely on God's faithfulness, as I say, and not the obedience of David or Israel for that matter. And if you just got the next slide. I, uh, there's, a, there's a very old book I had in my, when I was uh, at, at uni, by a guy called Norman Snaith. Um, and it was written in 1945 or something. And it was a, a small book called Distinctive Ideas of the Old Testament. And in it is a whole section about covenant. So what he was doing was basically picking out the key themes that are very evident in the Old Testament that become critical, fundamental theological truths that we live in the good of in the New Testament. And he said this, when covenant is used, so not just in relation to man, between man and man, or as it was there. He said, when it is used of God, it moves steadily towards grace. Now, that's a very simple statement, and you might think, well, that's fine. I read it, actually, <laughs> sat in the garden when I was preparing early in the week, um, it's got nothing to do with this, but I, we've got a tiny little back garden, which is lovely. Uh, and um, that we can put a hammock across the two walls, across the corners. Um, and it's one of the most glorious places on earth when the sun's shining. And I was, I was in the hammock reading this book as, as part of prep. It's tough preparing for a Sunday morning, let me tell you. Um, really, really challenging from time. 
And I just read those simple words and I just had to put the book down. Because how beautifully expressed is that when covenant is used of God, it moves steadily towards grace. Says so much about our loving Heavenly Father that in all his dealings with us, he moves us towards grace. Doesn't move us towards judgment. Now, there may be challenge, correction, and all the rest of it along the way. Paul talks about a lot in Romans about this, doesn't he? About sin and grace. He said, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. And then some daft people said, well, should we then just carry, keep on sinning then? Should we just keep on being naughty so that we'll have more grace? Well, no, don't be ridiculous. Because grace overcomes and grace teaches us not to keep doing the same things. And that's God's father heart to us, isn't it? It moves us towards grace. Are you... Do you think every day about the grace of God? I don't and I should. Because it stops you in your tracks. It's what saves us. It's what upholds us. It's what keeps us strong. It is the most fundamental thing God can give us in Jesus, is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Moves us towards grace. And David's experience of covenant was not just with God, but as we, we talked about with Jonathan, so we won't go over all of that again, but he experienced covenant between relationships as well. And we talked last time when we looked at that about just how strong Jonathan's line was. In fact, it should have been the covenant between Jonathan and David, <laughs> not David and Jonathan. Jonathan. Jonathan should always be the one mentioned first in that relationship because Jonathan expressed his covenant relationship with David in terms of love, acceptance, affirmation, faithfulness, support, um, and lots of other things. And what do all of those things speak of? They speak of the grace of God. So in a really funny kind of way, David experienced some of what would become the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in his relationship with Jonathan. Un conditional love and acceptance. So, what can we learn from all of this? David, for all his flaws, created the best expression of Israel as a nation, but that is only a tiny, inconsequential representation of the glory of the kingdom of God. And you might think he was a flawed character well, I would invite anybody who hasn't got a flawed character to put their hands up right now, but there won't be any. And perhaps the best epitaph that could have gone on David's tombstone is this. He was a man after God's own heart. That's who he was. He was a man after God's own heart. And I want, I mean, we're quite early this morning, but I want us just, you know, that's all I felt I needed to say, really. Um, 
And just to ask us all and me the question is, are we, am I, a man, a woman, after God's heart?